Good morning. I'd like you to join me, if you would, in the last chapter of 2 Corinthians. We have come, finally, to the last paragraph. In this, the most personal of all Paul's letters. In fact, it's a letter whose theme is how to live out authentic Christianity. How to be real. How to be genuine. That's what it's all about. If you want an outline for the book, here it is. Paul, tell, he, def, he defines authentic Christianity, he describes it, and he depicts it. It's defined in chapter 5 and verse 11 where Paul says, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creature. See, Christianity is not just a few cosmetic changes that you make. It's not just an addendum to your life. It's not just adapting to some Christian social expectations. It's, just, it's not just some minor things that I change in my life. It's not just a fad. It's not just an external veneer that I put over me. I said in the video that we had our kitchen remodeled. We used the old cabinets and had them glazed, which means we put paint over them and made them look different. They're the old cabinets, but they look different. That's not who you are as a believer. You're not the old with a paint job. You are a new creature in Jesus Christ. By the grace of God, the old you exists no more. And you are a completely new creature in Jesus Christ. The old has passed away. All things have become new. That's the definition of authentic Christianity. And so Paul defines it, but he also describes it in this book. How do I, as a new creation, live in this old creation? Well, he tells us throughout the book. In chapter 1, he says, here's how you relate to affliction. You go through it. And you find the comfort of Jesus Christ, and you grow. Chapter 2, here's how you relate to a fallen brother. You forgive him, and you restore him. Chapter 3, here's how you relate to the old covenant. You come out of it into the liberty of the Spirit of God. Chapters 4 and 5, here's how you relate to your body. You view it as a tent, something you're staying in temporarily. You view it as an earthen vessel that is decaying, and you have a permanent body provided by the Lord for you. This outer body is decaying. My inner man is being renewed day by day. Chapters 5 and 6, here's how you relate to this lost world. Chapter 5, verse 20, he says you are an ambassador down here to bring other people to Jesus Christ. And in chapter 6 and verse 14, he says, don't be unequally yoked together with this lost world. Chapter 7, here's how you relate to correction. Paul says you'll let that correction bring sorrow to you and let that sorrow bring repentance to you so that there is a turnaround in your life. Chapters 8 and 9, here's how you relate to the needs of others. You give to meet those needs. Chapters 10 
to 12. Here's how you relate to teachers. You use God's values to discern who is true and who is false. Because there are many false teachers out there, Paul warns us. And then in chapter 13, as we saw last week, here's how you relate to friends. You do whatever it takes to fix fractured relationships. And then the third part of the book is authentic Christianity depicted, and it's depicted in the life and character of the Apostle Paul. He's writing to the church at Corinth. They were infatuated with false teachers. The characteristics of these false teachers that he names in this book is that they took pride in appearance rather than their heart. That they commended themselves. That they lorded over the people. They were worldly leaders in a Christian context. And Paul knew what that was like. Paul had been a Pharisee. Paul graduated at the top of his class. Paul was a leader in a natural sense. He possessed all the attributes that the world values in a leader. He was competent. He was impressive. He was powerful. He was proud. But he met Jesus Christ. And Jesus made him a new creation. And we see that depicted in Paul. You know what he says about himself in this book? Chapter 3, verse 5, he says, I'm inadequate. Chapter 4, verse 10 I'm dead. Chapter 11, verse 30, I'm weak. And then he caps it off in chapter 12 and verse 11 by saying, I am a nobody. Now, why would he say those things about himself? Because he understands the paradox of authentic Christianity. When I am inadequate, then I'm adequate. When I am weak, then I'm strong. When I am dead, then I am alive. When I am a nobody, then I am somebody in Jesus Christ. You see, those are the values of authentic Christianity, and they are 180 degrees apart from the values of this world. And Paul lived out those values. He depicted authentic Christianity. And his burden for the Corinthians is that they would get this as well. That's why he said in chapter 12, verse 14, I do not seek what is yours but you. I don't want your money. I want you to really get what authentic Christianity is and live it out. And he says in that context in verse 15, I will most gladly spend and be expended for your souls. I will spend whatever it takes. I will give whatever it takes to see you get this. And that's further evidenced by the way Paul closes this letter. He's warning and praying and challenging right up to the last word. He says in chapter 13 and verse 5, test yourselves. Why? Because he wants to make sure that you know that you have authentic Christianity. What I find exciting is that even as he says goodbye, we see that Paul wants to see this happen in, his, in their lives. His parting passion is that they would be authentic. And we're going to look at verses 11 to 14 this morning, and I want us to look at it in three parts. First of all is the exhortations of authenticity in verse 11. And here Paul gives five brief exhortations. Notice verse 11. Finally, 
brethren, rejoice. Exhortation number one is be joyful. Now, your Bible may say farewell. This is a word that was used sometimes as a greeting, sometimes as a parting. But what I like here is that Paul doesn't choose just a generic word like goodbye, see you later, adios, bon voyage, ciao. He uses the word joy or rejoice, which I think is his point. He's not just waving. He's challenging. Rejoice. In fact, the same word is used in Philippians 3.1 where Paul says, Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. You see, that's not a farewell. That's a challenge. And I think that's what Paul is doing here. He is challenging us to rejoice. This Greek word is the Greek word karos. It was often confused with another Greek word, charis. They're like twin words. Charis means grace. Karas means joy. Which is great that they go together because grace is the root and joy is the fruit. How can Paul speak to this church that has so many problems in it and say, be joyful without faking it? without just putting a fake smile on their faces. How can he do that? Because of grace. You see, authentic Christianity is not phony. It's not fake. It's not plastic. It's not pretend. It is living honestly in God's grace. And when you live honestly in God's grace, even with all your failures you can be joyful. That's why the Bible says the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy. First exhortation, be joyful. Second exhortation, be restored. Look at verse 11. Be made complete. The word complete has the idea of repairing what is broken, of restoring what is lost. It's a word used of resetting a dislocated limb. Paul prayed this same word in verse 9. Now he's exhorting them to do it in verse 11. This is the Greek word used in Matthew 4.21 where it says the disciples were mending their nets. And it's the word used in Galatians 6.1 where it says you are to restore a fallen And so, Paul's word to those who have fallen into sin, Paul's word to those who have a dislocated relationship, is that you would repent and be restored. Be mended and put back into right relationship with God and right relationship with others. Now, the Corinthian church was not what you would call spiritually healthy. They had a lot of problems. Most of their problems began with the letter M. Immorality, impurity, immortality. They didn't understand that, so he wrote 1 Corinthians chapter 15. But their biggest problem was immaturity. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul says, I'd like to speak to you as adults, but I have to talk to you like infants. 
According to the Guinness Book of World Records, the largest baby ever born was in Italy in 1955, and he weighed over 23 pounds. That's a big baby. But I've seen bigger babies in the church. And I've been a bigger baby in the church. 100-pound babies, 150-pound babies, 200-pound babies, 250-pound babies. I hear 300 300-pound babies. And when you're a spiritual baby and you should be grown up, you know what it causes? All kinds of relational problems. I can put up with a baby when they're a baby. And they're screaming and they want everything all the time. But when you should be an adult and you're still screaming for everything all the time, you're creating a lot of relational problems. And that's why the Corinthians had so many factions and so many fights. And Paul's exhortation is, get that dislocated limb reset. Get back into right relationship with God and with each other. And Paul says, with me. Third exhortation. Be admonished. You see it in verse 11 in the words, be comforted. That word means Heed my appeal. Be admonished. Take this to heart. One of the characteristics of an authentic Christian is that he or she desires to be like Jesus. And how do you get to be more like Jesus? You have to change. And how does God bring about that change? Sometimes he hits you in the head with a golf ball. But most of the time, he admonishes you. So one of the characteristics of an authentic Christian is that he or she welcomes correction because we know that that is the trigger for growth, development, and change. Sometimes I'm out in the lobby, and, and some of you will come by, and you'll say to me, Pastor, you really stepped on my toes today. Thank you very much. I needed that. That hurt, but I needed that. You see, you're saying, I welcome admonition because I want to change. I was severely admonished this week by my wife. And I uh, went and got two witnesses, and they came and said, She's right. You're an idiot. (laughs) And I felt awful about that. But you know what? I feel great about it today. Because correction brings about change in our lives. And if we hide it and we ignore it or we defend it, if I had said to her, well, who are you to tell me? Are you trying to be holier than me? What are you trying to offend me? What are you judging me? I never would have gotten that. Authentic Christianity says, bring on the admonition. If I got blind spots, you come and and speak the truth to me in love. Or if I've fallen as a brother Don't ignore me. Come and lift me up. 
You see, verse 10 says at the end that admonition is for building up and not for tearing down. We don't admonish each other because we want to hurt each other. We don't admonish each other because we want to bring you down a level. We admonish each other because ultimately we want you to be built up to be more like Jesus Christ. Fourth exhortation. Be united. You see it in verse 11? Be like-minded or be one-minded or have the same mind. Your body is made up of many members. You've got toes and feet and arms and legs and fingers and eyes and ears and a tongue, and they are designed to be cohesive. They are designed to work together. When the body operates properly, there is unity. And what is the invisible key to that? It's one mind. One control center, one purpose. Can you imagine what your life would be like if God had given you three minds? It would be chaos. He gave you one body and one mind. Now, sometimes you're out of your mind, or you're not in your right mind, but that's another message. You see, as believers, we together constitute the body of Christ. And just as your physical body is designed to be cohesive and to work together, the body of Christ is designed to be united. In fact, the night before the cross, Jesus prayed these words for you in John 17, 23, that they may be brought to complete unity to let the world know that you sent me. How do you convince a lost friend that Jesus is real? Theological arguments? Yeah. Historical evidence? Sure. But the most convincing evidence that you can give to a lost person that Jesus is real is our unity in the body of Christ. Now, there are some strange ideas floating around about what unity looks like and what unity is. So let me just clarify this. Unity is not the same as uniformity. Some preachers will tell you that all Christians should wear the same clothes. All Christians should use the same translation of the Bible. All Christians should pray in King James English. All Christians should like the same music. All Christians should obey the same rules. You know, you don't drink or smoke or chew or go with girls who do. God never intended to create cookie-cutter Christians. If you look at your body, your body has amazing unity while it has extreme diversity. In fact, no two members are the same. Even even duplicate members are not the same. You have no finger that's the same. You have no fingerprint that is the same. You have no tooth the same. Every single member is diverse. 
And yet, with all that diversity, God wants unity. And the body of Christ is this group of extremely diverse people, amazingly united together. Long hairs, short hairs, no hairs. You can wear shorts, you can wear a suit, you can wear blue jeans, you can be a PhD, you can be a high school dropout, you can be a millionaire, you can be on welfare, you can be a cop, you can be a biker, toupees, tattoos. You see, it's not uniformity. We're not going to look the same. It's unity. And the second, unity is not unification. Some preachers are trying to get all Christian groups to put aside their faith and put aside their beliefs and just sit politely at the same table, and that will be unity. That's what goes by the term ecumenical movement today. That is not unity. I've been to weddings, I've done weddings before, where, where you have a broken family and you get them to all come into the same room for the rehearsal and for the wedding, and they look nice and they act cordial, but the reality is you could cut the unity with a knife. There's division all over that room. You got them to be together, but you didn't get unity. See, I can take two cats and tie their tails together and put them in a pillowcase. That would be unification but that would not be unity. Man-made unity in the body of Christ will never succeed. Man-made unity in the body of Christ will never succeed because we cannot create unity. Only the Spirit of God can create unity. That's why Ephesians 4.3 says, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. You see, you can't create unity. You can only keep unity or not keep unity. You can maintain it or you can mess it up. So how do we maintain the unity of the Spirit of God? By being of one mind. Whose mind? Your mind or my mind? Whose body is it? Christ. So whose mind is it? Christ. 1 Corinthians 3.16 says, We have the mind of Christ. Now, does that mean we all believe exactly the same things? Does that mean we all think exactly the same thoughts about everything? No. Philip Melanchthon, one of the leaders of the Protestant Reformation, said, in the essentials, there must be unity. What do you mean by that? What are the essential beliefs, the essential doctrines? Things like the deity of Christ. Things like salvation by grace through faith. Things like Jesus is the only way to the Father. But in non-essentials, there is liberty to differ In Romans 14, Paul wrote about a disagreement. Some Christians thought it was wrong to eat meat offered to idols. Others thought it was delicious. 
Paul writes to him. What does he say? Here's Christ's mind. It's right, and everybody get over here and act like it. That's not what he says. He says, it's right, but there are going to be some young Christians who haven't figured that out yet. So you need to give them time to grow into that understanding. And while they grow into that understanding, you need to disagree about this in unity. You see, the mind of Christ is primarily practical and not theological. Did you get that? It's primary. The way I can tell you've got the mind of Christ is not that you can quote a lot of Bible verses. The way I can tell you've got the mind of Christ is practical because it's lived out in your life. In Philippians 2.5, Paul says, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. And then does he go on and tell us all kinds of theological truth? No. What is the mind of Christ? He humbled himself, and he served us by going to the cross. So how do I have the mind of Christ? By humbling myself and serving others. You want the formula for unity? It's right in that passage. You can go to it later, Philippians 2.3. It says, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. Do nothing from selfishness or pride. But with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourself. That's it. If everybody in here considered everyone else most important, what would we have? Unity. And that's authentic Christianity. Fifth exhortation. Live in harmony. You see it in verse 11. Live in peace. Harmony is a lot like unity, but the difference is only the Holy Spirit can create unity. Harmony is something you can choose. Let me use a couple of illustrations. I'm going to use, I'm going to uh, tell you ahead of time, I'm going to use some music illustrations, and I'm non-musical. So if I mess this up, cut me some grace. Now let's say we had a 300-member choir up here with a full orchestra. But every musician played the same instrument, and every singer sang the same note the same way. What would that be? Boring. But see, when you have flutes and saxophones and guitars and basses and tenors and altos and sopranos playing and singing in harmony, what do you have? Beautiful music. Let's say we had 100 pianos up there, up here, and we took a tuning fork and we tuned the first piano to the tuning fork, and then we tuned the second piano to the first piano and the third to the second and the fourth to the third and so on. You know what would happen when we got to the 100th piano? It would no longer be in tune with the first piano. But if we took all 100 pianos and we tuned them to the tuning fork, what would we have? We would have harmony. What's the application? When we get out of tune with each other, harmony doesn't happen by comparing yourself with the other person and criticizing their notes. 
Harmony happens by getting in tune with Jesus. And when you get in tune with Jesus, you will be in tune with other people. I use a triangular illustration with couples in premarital counseling, just a triangle. And I say, you know, your relationship is threefold. There's the Lord at the top, and there's you two at the two corners of that triangle. And the closer you each get to Jesus, guess what? The closer you get to each other. And same in our relationships in the body of Christ. The closer we get to Jesus, the closer we get to each other. Well, those are the exhortations. And if you notice the end of verse 11, they come with a promise. He says, and the God of love and peace will be with you. You see, authentic Christianity is not passivity. It is constant activity. And the promise follows the action. So he's saying, when you are being joyful and being restored and receiving admonition and being united and living in harmony, then God shows up. What does the Bible say? Draw near to God. And what? He will draw near to you. Same concept. Second point. I'm going to finish this. Let's be real quick. Second point, the expression of authenticity. Look at verse 12 and 13. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the saints greet you. What is the expression of authentic Christianity? A kiss. This command is given five times in the New Testament. So let's talk about kissing for a minute. Now I got your attention, don't I? I was always taught that this was cultural. That in that day, everybody kissed everybody. Hello, you know the old kind of thing. And we don't do that in our culture. So if Paul was here today, he would have said, give everybody a holy handshake. But you know, I went back and looked at Roman culture. Culture in the Roman Empire. And they didn't normally kiss each other when they greeted each other. They actually started the handshake. And the reason it started was because Roman soldiers often carried a little dagger in the wristband. And so when you came up and greeted somebody, you didn't grab their hand, you grabbed their forearm like that, the Roman handshake. And you were checking to see if they had a knife. It was like you show your hand and make sure that you don't have your knife so we can talk. Which tells me that when you shake somebody's hand, you're not really saying, hey, how are you doing? You're checking them for weapons. (laughs) You're saying, I don't trust you. Kisses in that culture were reserved for family members and close friends. And it's the same today. I kiss my wife, I kiss my kids, I kiss my grandkids, I kiss my mom. I don't kiss strangers. And I think what Paul is saying to us is that in the church, we're not made up of strangers. We are family. And we need to greet each other as family, and we need to express that reality. 
Now, before you start doing this, let me remind you that it's a holy kiss. Not a sensual kiss, a holy kiss. So, uh, you know, just keep that in mind. The word holy actually means set apart, so the, whole, the word holy really means pure, so it really is saying it's authentic, it's genuine, it's real. There are a lot of people in our body who have lost their spouse, they may be a widow, widower. You know what, when they come to church, they probably haven't had a hug all week. And if you went and gave them a hug, it would make their day. A loving hug that says, you are my sister in Christ, you are my brother in Christ. It's got to be authentic. Who gave the inauthentic kiss? Judas. Came and kissed Jesus like, hey, we're close friends. And it wasn't really there. If you struggle with a kiss, start out with a hug. Start out with the A-frame. You know, the A-frame? Hug. Jeremy and Cher adopted a little girl, Mertenesh, from Ethiopia. I went in to see her today. I'd seen her earlier, but I went in to see her today. And I can't tell if she remembered me or not, but she was so excited to see me, and she gave me a big hug. And I started to kind of talk to her, and I realized she only knows about five English words, so we really weren't communicating. I was just kind of telling her a couple things, and she was just kind of smiling at me. And I kissed her on the cheek. And she kissed me back on the cheek. She still doesn't speak English, but she speaks authenticity. Because <laughs> that, I won't forget that. For the rest of the day, I'm excited about the fact that I got a kiss out of her. And she was comfortable enough with me to say, you can be part of my life, your family. Third, the essentials of authenticity in verse 14. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Someone asked me last week to explain the Trinity, and I told them what I tell you. I don't know how to explain the Trinity. But it's clearly taught in the Bible. And the exciting thing is when you go and search out the Trinity in the Scriptures, it's not merely a theological concept that God gives us so that we can ponder over it in our minds. It's not just an idea that he throws at us so that we can wrestle with it. It is a practical reality that he wants us to embrace because when you look at the Trinity, you're going to find it most of the time in the context of salvation. Most of the time, you're going to find it in the context of our need. God shows up and says, here's who I am because I'm ministering to your needs, and we embrace him, and we find out he is actually a triune God. Did you see the things we get from verse 14? The grace of Jesus, the love of the Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. Hook those three together, and that means by the grace of Jesus... We experience the love of God, and we are brought into the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. What's exciting in this verse is 
It's not just limited to a one-time experience at salvation. Because he's saying, I want you to experience that in an ongoing way. I want you to experience this continually in your life. And that's what authentic Christianity is. When I get saved by grace, I experience God's love, I experience the fellowship of God the Holy Spirit, and I never get over it. And I never get away from it. Can you imagine what your life would be like without the grace of Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit? Without the triune God at work in your life? I was thinking, you know, with all he's done for me, if I'm not authentic, it's not God's fault. I've got all the essentials. And when you look at verses 11 to 14, you know what's interesting? There aren't any circumstances in here. There's no new job, no new house, no new health, no prosperity. These are all internal things, intangible things except the kiss. So the signs of authentic Christianity are joy, comfort, peace, love, grace, fellowship, wrapped in a kiss because we live them out together. May God help us to be authentic, to be genuine, to be real. We're going to close our service by focusing on the grace of Jesus. We're going to take the bread and the cup and remember the cross. There is nothing more essential than this. You can't be real without grace. You can't be real without the cross of Jesus Christ. Because if it weren't for the cross, you would have to fake it. But because of the cross, in all our failures, we can come back and be forgiven and be restored, be mended, be healed in our relationship with him. What an exciting concept. We're going to pray and then take communion together. If you're here as a guest, you're welcome. It's the Lord's Supper. If you're a believer, you're welcome to participate. You can just walk up to the various stations when you're heart is ready and take the bread and take the cup and return to your seat. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for Jesus. That he gave his all to transform us into new creatures in you. What an insult it is for us to live phony lives when you have given us everything we need to be genuine, authentic, and real. And Lord, as we take the bread and the cup today, I pray that you would challenge our hearts afresh to walk out the faith we claim for Jesus' glory.